Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. This episode is the second in a series celebrating 100 years of the History of Science Society. The audio quality of this episode is unfortunately rather uneven because speakers were using different technologies, including a telephone. During this podcast, you'll hear reports of personal conversations over the years. After discussing these with the participants, we have left the reports of those experiences in the podcast, but have beeped out the names of those involved. With those notes out of the way, here's the podcast. You are sitting in an archive. You open a folder. You find something long forgotten, but not lost in time. Hello, welcome. This is the History of Science Society's Centennial Podcast Series, honored with the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Fadi Fan. Today, we're going to talk about a truly important topic, women historians of science. Joining us today are four guests, Margaret Rossiter, our most recent Sartan medalist. Her work on women scientists and her career as a woman historian of science have profoundly impacted our field. Samantha or Sam Milka and Tara Numadal, they're co-chairs of the Women's Caucus, and Matt Levine, co-editor of ISIS. Thank you all for being here. Now, dear listeners, I'm going to invite you to enter a phantom toll booth and embark on the time travel. Matt here is our tour guide. So Matt, tell us about your discovery. What did you find when you bravely entered the bowels of the beast? So this is the story of my encounter with 99 poorly organized boxes in the Smithsonian Institution, the archives of the History of Science Society itself. And this was part of of our research for a centennial issue on the centennial of the the history of science society in ISIS. The theme of which was the hidden labor involved in in the business of the society and producing the journal. And we already knew that a great deal of behind the scenes labor of getting ISIS published and keeping the society from bankruptcy had been done by women. So there's the legendary managing editor of ISIS, Francis Kohler, the first ISIS bibliographer, uh, Magda Whitrow, women who were patrons, who were copy editors, who used their political or social influence on, on behalf of the society. But as soon as we got into the archives, as soon as I, as I opened these boxes, it became clear that there was a lot more to be said about the work done by women who were forcing the society and the discipline as a whole to work towards some semblance of, of parity and, and equality in, in the governance of the society itself. So it started with a box, box number two out of 99, which it contains, and I didn't read them in order, but it contains the records of the the Committee on Women, which had been established by the HSS Council in December of 1972. And so this draft report from 1973, this typewritten document scribbled all over with pen, was one of the first documents I saw. And what jumped out at me, what, what, what would jump out at any historian looking at these documents, which in these 99 boxes are mostly very carefully worded memos between society officers or things intended for publication. What, what jumped out at me is, is that this contained, this contained the kinds of things that people say when they 
can speak with the bluntness of anonymity. So it, it contains the, the testimony of women, graduate students, faculty, contingent faculty, librarians, archivists, supporters who are speaking frankly. And that's always so bracing to see in, in this kind of archive. And it, it really makes you stand up and take notice. And I mean, I know that Tara and Sam will be talking more about the contents, but that was the aha moment. And I immediately contacted Alex and said, we have to put this in print. Great. Thank you. So the report is called Report of the Committee on Women in the History of Science. And the committee was appointed by council in 1972, and the report was filed in 1973 based on surveys and the anonymous comments collected from women uh, historians of science at that time. And as it happened, the people on the committee included Margaret Rossiter. So Margaret, you were one of the members on the committee. How did the whole thing happen? How did it start? So what was it like? Well, I was a graduate student at Yale until 71, and every year, three or four or five of us graduate students went to the annual meeting of the History of Science Society, and at some point, a group formed to have a meeting of women in the society and discuss our grievances. So I think we called it non-negotiable demands, and somebody got there early and found a room and put up signs, and we got together, and Eventually, we decided we needed a committee. There were enough of us, and we were unanimous enough to think we ought to be doing something. We didn't really know how the society worked. It had a council and it had officers. But if we got together and maybe wrote a report explaining what the problems were, then maybe something would begin to happen. So we were so, young, yeah. mostly. We were energetic. We were angry. And, and I think it's one of the best things we ever did because there was no lawsuit underway, as there were at other places. There was no salary discussion of who's getting ripped off and such. It was just sort of a query, what's our status? Right. And we're certainly not running anything. We know we're at the bottom, but we know we're sort of numerous. So here hmm. we did, we came to a meeting. So based on your recollection, how many people were there, uh, the active, like very active? I don't active know. Group? I know, but I, I uh, went every year and in we talking in December seventy three, December seventy two, the committee was formed. Well, I was postdoctoral fellow, I think officially at Brown, but I lived still lived in New Haven. And Barbara Rosencrantz was probably around, and she was a fireball. Guess we decided we needed a committee. Uh-huh. And I guess the committee has to be voted on by the council. And I don't know how much advance notice you need, but every, nobody was against. And meanwhile, the business meeting of the society was wide open, and there was a lot of discussion. And a lot of negative comments. I remember, I think he was a, that he was a male chauvinist pig and he was damn proud of it. So it wasn't too clear what the path forward was. So the committee seemed harmless. We weren't asking for, you know, non-negotiable, non-negotiable demands exactly. We were going to write a report. And Carolyn Iltis was around. I got to California in August 73, I think it was. And eventually, I lived about three blocks away from her. So when she began sending out questionnaires, I, I could pop down there, and say, one afternoon a week and read them with her. We could begin to think maybe what a report might say. Right. So Caroline Eltis is also much better known. she's still today. alive in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. older than I am. So. Right. It's a Caroline, Caroline Merchant. 
everybody yeah. knows Carolyn Merchant. So Carol Elphinstone, yeah. Right back then, yeah. Thank you. And so at that time, from your experience, what you felt most strongly about, like the job prospect or the way women felt that they did not have the opportunities to hold significant positions in society. And there, was, there weren't yeah. many jobs, and what jobs there were weren't really great. And they mm-hmm. weren't anywhere near where you were or your husband was likely to be. But somehow, I guess we thought a report would be useful. Right. And I guess the report recommended a, a real committee. So. Yes, yes. It, I'm not sure which came which came first. But the committee has been a great success. I think it may have, ex- may have exceeded what we hoped for. Right. So it wasn't any individual test case or anything. It was just sort of a group coming together, realizing we're a certain percentage of the society. We're certainly not getting ahead. And if you look at the numbers, we're sort of terminal. So right. maybe, maybe we've got to do something. And Rosencrantz was quite outspoken and forceful. She was working her way into the Harvard system. Yeah, at that time, there were more than 1,000 members of the society. And according to the statistics here, 164 were women. So it's a 14.7% of the profession. However, there are about a third of the graduate students were women. So basically, it's interesting to see the you know, people who move up and the people who just started and so on. So it's just different kind of a situation, which... I'm sure Tara and the Sam will have a lot more uh, insights and to talk about this uh, issue. So, but for me, it was when you went to the meeting, who did you meet? The old right. men didn't talk to you exactly, but there were other women from other graduate schools. And we're probably more than 14%. So a fertile, a fertile field for some kind of activity. So Sam and Tara, when you read this report, what surprised you the most? What survey results jumped off the page to you? Please share with us your thoughts and the responses. Like when you saw this, it's kind of lost. Like it, it has never been published and it has never been really shared with the members. So this is Tara. I'll go ahead and start. I think one of the first thing, two things struck me right away. One was that the Women's Caucus, as, as we're now known, has been around for 50 years now. So this is kind of our 50th anniversary in 2023. So absolutely a success in the sense that we still exist. And it's still a really meaningful part of, I think, many female scholars' experience at HSS. The second thing that I, as I read through this, I was surprised at how unsurprising some of the findings were in the survey, both because of the scholarship of women scholars like Margaret Rossiter, who have documented this historically, but I think also because we still grapple with some of these things. So this survey, they found, for example, that women were really underrepresented at the sort of highest ranks in the profession and the most prestigious positions. So as you went up the ladder, there were fewer and fewer women, right? So Fatih, you just said third of the graduate students were female, but very few full professors, right? They were sort of clustered at the lower ranks, not, you know, not in editorial positions, not winning prizes, not full professors. And these are things that we still talk about today in terms of representation, kind of in the most visible, prestigious positions in the field for women and others. So I feel like we're still talking about a lot of those things. That was the first thing that struck me. And this committee really called on the society to take a leading role in changing that, both within the society and in members' home departments. 
So they advocated, you know, they had nine recommendations, which were approved in December of 73, the following year. Two things jumped out at me. One is to create a roster of female scholars so that when a committee was forming, they could say, hey, here are some women who could be on the committee. And another was to list jobs publicly. This one really, I think, jumped out at me. It's a reminder of how informal our profession was in 1972 in ways that really disadvantaged women and others. Jobs were just not published, right? They were kind of, people were, quote, placed, as we say. Right, you know, right, you called right. your friend and when there was a position and, and the committee really sort of demanded that jobs be listed publicly so that people could apply for them. And then they reported on who got these jobs over the next 10 years, which is also interesting as a way of, as they put it, monitoring the jobs in the profession. So that, you know, they were really trying to kind of create these these changes. I think another one that jumped out at me, and Sam, I'm sure you'll, you might want to speak to this as well, but for married women, historians of science, there were something called anti-nepotism laws in place at a lot of universities that basically prevented women from holding a job if she was married mm. to a man who had a position at the same institution. So this real structural barrier for, you know, dual career historians of science families. Um, and so the committee really called on members to advocate at their home universities to abolish these anti-nepotism rules. That one kind of really struck me. And of course, we still grapple with this so-called two-body problem today for a lot of couples with two professors, how to get jobs in the same place. But we don't have the anti-nepotism rules anymore. <laughs> That's true. And uh, talking about women winning prizes, I would just like to say too, like Tara actually won our Pfizer Award last year. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, Sam, would you like to follow up on that? Yeah, there are a couple of things in this report that I just think are really beautiful pieces of information. Like it's so full. So one of them was to look at the subfields that women were in in the particular profession. So they found that there were more women doing work in the history of behavioral sciences and history of biology than there right. were in geology, math, and physics. There are little pieces of this report that are just, we find this information now in these kind of far-flung places, but it's very hard to find a report that has kind of all of them. The other one is that they did such a beautiful job of looking at publication. And so one of them was to look at JHB and ISIS and they found that, you know, at JHB, 5% of the editors or staff were women, and about 14% of the, the pieces published were by women. And so those types of pieces of information, those things have gotten better over time, but we can still see, right, they're drawing really beautiful kind of conclusions about who's working in these positions and kind of how that's reflected in who's publishing, which is nice. And then the last one that they, they did that I thought was just a really beautiful piece was looking at NSF grants and kind of how they are not necessarily being awarded at the same rate, but also how important it is to pay attention to that data because they confer a type of expertise and status to a person that has it that helps them climb the ladder. So they're kind of showing all of these moving parts, it's not just the amount of women, it's not just where they are, but these kind of other spaces where they're trying to carve out status that kind of feed back into that system. So the report did just a really thorough job showing how all these moving parts kind of work together. So thank you. Sam just mentioned something very important about uh, journal and other kind of institutional 
spaces for women and so on and so forth. And Matt, since you're a co-editor of ISIS, so I have to put a question to you. Do you see the, any significant changes or something interesting that improved? Because I know ISIS has been very serious in the past uh, several years collecting demographic data about your authors, contributors, and so on, and submissions. So in response to this report from 1973, do you see any significant changes and why and so on? Well, it probably won't surprise anyone here that some things have changed and some things haven't. So we have undertaken a more comprehensive survey of who is submitting to ISIS, who is asked to review articles and books for ISIS, who is being published in ISIS. A lot of this is is the genesis of, of work done by my co-editor, Alex Huey. She read, as we all did at the beginning of the pandemic, that there was a disproportionate impact on women authored scholarship as a result of the sudden changes in everyone's lifestyle. And so she essentially put together a coalition of journals to look at this. And what we found was that there was, in fact, a disproportionate impact. A lot of women were more so than than male scholars were, were having to do family care, having to do elder care, even more so than, than had been the case before. And this has sort of ebbed and flowed in subsequent years. But What we see now with respect to what is being published in our journal is something like parity. More men submit articles to ISIS than women. If we screen out those articles, which are immediately desk rejected, not really so much for quality, but for being sort of flagrantly inappropriate for our journal, as opposed to a philosophy journal, a technical journal, it it comes closer. It comes to within about 60% 60% to 40, 60% men and 40% women. The rate of accepted articles is still closer to parity, which we think reflects the overall demographics of the society. But we're still actually trying to figure that out. We don't know in concrete terms what, I mean, for the, for the field as a whole, we don't really still know to what extent, we don't, we don't know the statistics, we don't know the numbers, because it can be very difficult to count people who aren't society members, which is one right. kind of barrier, and, and who aren't, you know, who are submitting to this journal versus that journal. So there's a lot of murkiness in terms of the actual numbers. I will say that, you know, we make a priority now, as was not the case, I think, in 1973, to make sure that people know that we take an ecumenical approach to different topics within the history of science, and that can have a gender component as well, as as Sam was saying. Work remains to be done, and the problem is that it's not just a question of changing hearts and minds in the editorial office of ISIS anymore. It is now, I think, against the rock bottom of structural issues in scholarship as a whole. Would you mind to just add a few sentences to that point? Right. So we can be as welcoming and encouraging as we can be, and we are. But if there is still structural inequalities in terms of who is receiving grants, who is encouraged in scholarship at the undergraduate level to pursue careers in scholarship, if women are disproportionately teaching at smaller institutions that don't have research budgets that allow them to do the kind of work that you know might be sort of a marquee thing in ISIS. Right. That all feeds into a process, and I think that accounts for the remaining lack of parity in our in our submission. And Margaret, so you have had this amazing career. In some ways, it well, illustrates. I survived. Let's say I survived. <laughs> well, well, it is I, funny. It was yeah. it was a struggle in itself. Yeah, yeah, and that speaks uh, volumes about you 
as a historian, as a woman, as a scholar, all together. So, and so in some ways, your career illustrated the changes in our profession since the 1970s. So from your vantage point, what are the most significant changes you have observed? Suddenly, you're a woman faculty at all the major programs. Mm. Princeton has Angela Krieger. Lynn Neihardt just retired from Wisconsin. Sally's at Minnesota. And there are women everywhere. Harvard right. must have five or six women full professors. That was unthinkable. Well, there was no major lawsuit, you know, and then a major change took place. Bit by bit, individual cases move in a new direction. Evelyn the, Hammonds is pre- yep. Evelyn Hammonds is going to be president. She's lucky she got right. tenure, right? She's lucky she got hired. Okay. So good things have been happening while nobody paid much attention. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what about the research fields that the you know, you basically help open up a whole research area basically in the field? Well, that's not easily done. You apply and people say you're not qualified, this doesn't fit, we don't do this. Then you have to be tenure track at say a major university to get an NSF grant. You did back then. We change things so independent scholars have a chance, but you're outside expectations. Everybody's most people are negative. I think my mother, Sally Colstead, and maybe one or two others said I should persevere. But everyone else said it was a stupid waste of time. One article on my tribe, as one Yale professor said, was enough. And yet, what else was I going to do? I did a dissertation on agricultural chemistry. That mm-hmm. wasn't opening any doors. Jobs disappeared, so you were lucky to get a postdoc. So I mean, you need a new project. So nobody else was looking at these women, which in a way is an advantage, right? There's, there's no competition. On the other hand, there's not, not too much help either. Right. And and my mother and Sally uh-huh. and some others encouraged and said, just keep going. And if you don't have a job for next fall, well, you have a year on your hands before you try again. Mm. So I lived in Berkeley, which had a great library, and they kept renewing my library card because... The student down at the renewal desk couldn't believe a professor would be unemployed. So then once you have your library card, you can keep reading. And you could say to yourself, well, I never heard of any woman geologist. So tomorrow I'll go to the Earth Sciences Library and hope to find a good librarian and find out where the geologists publish their obituaries. And maybe I'll find a 50- or 100-year index. And then maybe I can Xerox, you know, five or ten of these and see who was there and Lo and behold, it's all there, and they knew each other, and they went to Bryn Mawr together, and they helped each other at the geological survey. You know, there's a tremendous amount of material. If you just look, you can find it. But but if you went to a history of science society, they'd laugh at you. Back then, I hope now. Like... And they were so sure. They were so sure there was nothing there, and and people used to talk about. And they'd say, Margaret's writing a book on women in science. It's going to be very short. Ha ha ha. Well, it became three volumes, and it would be more if I was. You know, able to cope with current times. So an advantage and a disadvantage. Now, when I applied to NSF for grants, Ron Oldman couldn't find anyone to read them. Nobody works on it who could write a report. So you were at the dead end. So he sent it to senior women scientists. They said, we don't want this funded because this person is looking for trouble. So they turned me down. So mm. I complained and, and reapplied. And eventually I got a grant about the time Margaret Mead died in the late 70s, which meant there was a lot of publicity about women in science, and a congressman right. from Ohio, I think Ashcroft, denounced me on the floor of the U.S. Congress as wasteful spending. This is like 1978 or 79. Mm. 
So there I managed to get managed to apply, even though I'm unemployed. I got a grant, and I'm in trouble. And and now everybody thinks it's so marvelous that you studied these things. And, you know, oh, well, it was uphill all the way. But if you think if they existed, well, I, I one turning point was I went through the American Men of Science, this big reference book, because I wanted to get under the I wanted to get under the 20th century, and I wasn't sure what important man was the most important to write a biography of. Got these directory, American Men of Science, and about every tenth person was a woman, which boggles the mind, but that's the way it was. So then I have a, a, two, two or three hundred women, and they're all at the women's colleges or yeah. home economics. So then you right. say, okay, my family's in Boston. I can take one of the family cars and go to the Wellesley Archives, the Smith College Archives, and to get to Vassar and see what I can find. And you get there, and there's a library, maybe not a real archive, with an alumna sitting mm-hmm. among a lot of boxes, and she can be very helpful. And it turns out they had women faculty who trained women students, and it's been going on for 100 years. So there was plenty of stuff. In fact, it became overwhelming how much there is. Nobody yep. bothered to look at it. Certainly nobody really trained in a field called history of science. Maybe the alumni association knew something, but so the more you look, the more you find. And then these archivists knew a lot of sort of anecdotal history of their colleges, and they could point you in new directions you never would have thought of. Several archivists, including our friend down at Caltech, said, oh, there's nothing here, Margaret. Of course, don't bother to come. Then I came, and I spent three days finding all kinds of stuff, because even though it's men faculty, they write about women behind their back, who belongs in the National Academy. Maybe they have women colleagues. Maybe they have visitors come from other places. And eventually I heard that she gave a talk on... Um, Sources for women's history at Caltech. Even though, like a month before, she was sure there was nothing there. So there's not be a term for this, but it was a phenomenon. And then when you, when you. you apply to NSF and you spend six or eight or ten weeks on the road and you find stuff, then when you reapply, you can say, well, I did not only what I said, but I did more than I said. And now there's even more out there. Because if you and show the, up and ask, then you'll, they'll do something. Otherwise, you, nobody will ever notice. Yeah, and you have continued and so opened up the whole. Yeah, new the archivists have gotten better. They've organized yeah. things. They have all kinds right. of indexes. But still, it's a lot of serendipity. Right. It's made it challenging, yep. right? I, I, was, I wasn't a beginner. This was exciting stuff. Right. And we're so grateful that you have actually persevered. You persevered. But it's the time there yeah. was skepticism, barely tolerance. If you want to put together a session of HSS, you got to find people, and maybe there's some fellow traveler who might say something, but it's not going to be a big session. And then you try and find a publisher for this book that you're trying to write, and that that took, that took years. Mm-hmm. So, although once I got a Guggenheim, the same people that had turned me down in ridicule called up, wrote a letter, and said to send in a proposal. So there, are many, there were many triumphs, but on the whole, it was my mother, Sally Colstead, and a couple of other people. But meanwhile, I also was unemployed. Every time you apply for a job, they say you don't fit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course I don't fit. If there's not, I'm not trying to fit. <laughs> but anyway, that means that I now have 11 months till next fall to figure out what I'm doing with myself. And if I live in Brooklyn, I'm near a major library, and I just keep going. Right. And every time I write a chapter, I don't get as far as I expected. I think I thought in volume one, there'd be one chapter called Entering the Profession. It became about four chapters. They so had to even, set up the women's colleges. 
But then right. to get the faculty, they needed to have PhDs, but there was, wasn't any graduate school taking women. So that's another story. Then they joined the society, but they certainly weren't going to be president. They were going to be, you know, some kind of junior member. But collectively, they got together, and then maybe they found somebody who could be president, and so there's a whole saga there. So anyway, I needed a topic, and the subject mm -hmm. needed developing. And uh, your experience here is really illuminating that we have learned, uh, basically, how you actually persevered. It required a lot of courage, <laughs> just stamina. And, and some yeah. resources just to keep going, get going to, say, a year or two from now. Because if you don't have a job for this fall, you won't have one until next fall. So you might as well be going to archives. Even though the archivist isn't terribly welcoming. But, but I must say, Ron Overman at NSF was fantastic. And then when I did get money and got denounced on the U.S. Congress, that brought the bosses into things. They had to defend me and their decision to fund me, which then led to a one-year job after my book came out. I, I was unemployed, still unemployed, out in Berkeley. And they said, well, Ron Overman's going on leave for a year. We want you to replace him. I didn't want to go. It was totally disruptive. But it opened new doors on the East Coast. So, so based on Margaret's experience, Tara, the same. So in from your different kind of perspective and experience perhaps, or maybe not too different. So what are the most exciting developments that you have seen over the years from reading this report and uh, I, I think Sam's gonna, Sam's gonna take this one first. Okay, Sam, go ahead, please. That's like impossible to follow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting. I, I think when you originally wrote this question, it was kind of like, what are some issues that are still going on or some developments? And what's really interesting to think about when you hear, you know, Margaret's story in this is, is how a lot of those challenges still persist and how they intersect with certain parts of. So in the past, we've kind of worried about women and parody in the field. And now we can kind of talk more about the intersections that make it difficult to succeed. And some of those intersections are, you know, class. When we talk about how long it takes to, to have to wait for a faculty position and the kind of ways that those positions are drying up right now, first-generation women struggle more. They struggle with that, their community, right? Their parents saying, go back to an archive and don't worry about it. Being able to kind of survive on the job market for that long is something that is still really difficult and becoming more difficult as faculty positions dry up. And this kind of wasted spending, which is the political kind of targeting of historians at the moment, and especially the type of history that women very specifically end up doing, race, class, and gender history, and kind of finding those stories like, like Margaret did, where people say that there's nothing, there's no there there, and you're like, there is, but you open yourself up to these kind of political tirades and kind of questions about the legitimacy of that history. And it's it's one thing for us to say, look, someone else persevered and that's really useful, but it's also another to say like, those are still kind of persistent problems. All of the amazing, you know, female faculty that, that are just mentioned, right, are there to mentor women who are coming up, but we still see fewer women of color, fewer faculty in those 
prestigious positions that are first generation PhD or even first generation American. And those things are really, really important to getting more women into the field of history of science and getting more of those untold stories kind of into the the center of our, you know, storytelling. Right. And how about Tara? I think, you know, Sam, you just, you mentioned intersectionality. And so this report from 1972, again, sort of unsurprisingly, the category is women. And that, you know, it's not surprising for 1972. But I think, you know, today we want to kind of think more broadly about, you know, our LGBTQ plus colleagues. You mentioned other categories, you know, our colleagues of color. We think in terms of disability, in terms of class, all of these sorts of things. And I think that, you know, as I kind of reflect on this 50-year story of what became the Women's Caucus and the way in which, you know, this generation of scholars in the 70s, including Margaret, really like tackled this first through documenting the problems really rigorously and with this survey, and then proposing these really kind of concrete structural changes, but also some cultural ones as well. I think it's really inspiring and perhaps a resource for the other ways in which we want to continue to make our our community more inclusive. So maybe this this 50-year history of the Women's Caucus can offer some examples, maybe some, you know, some some problems too and some things that that we did wrong, but maybe it can be a resource for the society as we reckon with other really important issues going forward. Mm-hmm. Are you going to have a celebration like uh, the 50 years anniversary? What kind of celebration is that going to be? Well, we were going to. <laughs> we kind of just did the math on the 50 years in preparation for this podcast and realized we should. We're about to celebrate 100 years of history of science society. But I think if half of that, you know, was was the what started off as a stand ad hoc committee and became a standing committee and is now the Women's Caucus, I think we do need a celebration. Sam and I are going to work on that for the for the fall meeting, hopefully in Portland. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. Let me know. I would love to support it. I would like to use this moment to emphasize how wonderful and significant it is that Margaret was awarded the Sartre Medal last year. The Sartre Medal is oh. the highest honor of the History of Science Society. The award was a way for us to express our profound gratitude to your amazing work and achievements. So thank you, Margaret. Well, I think it means that society has changed tremendously since the 70s and 80s when I was a beginner. Mm-hmm. My first book there, up to 1940, didn't win any prize from the History of Science Society. Every year I went to the dinner and the Sartan Medal went to somebody else. So the Women's Committee got angry that this was an outrage. And here was my wonderful book, and, and it was being bypassed totally by our own society. So they set up a prize. It involved a fun drive, and they um, have been giving out the Rossiter Prize ever since. <laughs> so I think we had people in, people in the society that took action. And, yeah. and they knew how the society worked well enough to know, you know, you raise funds, and you go to the council, and you get a prize established. Now, there was a big fight, apparently, over naming it for somebody living, which did, didn't, I guess it never happened, but they couldn't think of anybody else to give the prize to, so there I was. And also the society, I should mention, the Women's Committee has been running a breakfast for a good many That's years. That's right. Yeah, yeah, the Women's Caucus breakfast. Yeah. There was a survey done um, about, you know, what, what was your experience at the meeting. People got more out of those breakfasts than the rest of the society meeting entirely. People, they introduce themselves, whoever they are, if they're a first-year grad student to an emeritus, they introduce themselves, they give about three sentences about what they're doing. But there's 30 or 40 other people in the room that hear this. 
And so then later on, informally, they can talk to people, oh, you're from Oregon, and I want to get a postdoc in Oregon, and all kinds of things. And that has been beneficial. And, and apparently the meeting goes on for like three days, but there's nothing else quite so open. So mm-hmm. beginners and older people, it's user-friendly and, and been very successful. I don't think it was intended that way. But once I know you're looking for a job in upstate New York, I can you know, keep, keep you informed. It, it sort of it makes it easy to help other people. Right. And I don't think it was foreseen yeah. that way, but it's been mm-hmm. one of the benefits of it. Yeah, and 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 that is uh, it become a very important part of it. And I, maybe uh, maybe yep. minorities need something like that too. I don't quite know. Mm-hmm. They have events they can go to. Yeah, I, I would just like to say the women's caucus breakfast. I attended a couple of times, and every every time it was so wonderful. It's just like really, really community kind of a bonding experience. So, looking forward to the future, what can the society and the profession do more? to help women historian science, or you can just define the demographic category as you like. So, well, keep it short, like just one thing that you think we should do more and to help women historian science or other groups of historian science you think that should be in- included in your category, not just a one specific thing you would like us to do. So why don't we start with Matt? Well, you know, Fatih, I had, because, you know, you gave us these questions in advance. I hope I'm allowed to say that in a podcast. And I had a, a beautifully reasoned answer. I was going to talk about the things that ISIS can do and the society could do. But having heard Margaret's answer, I think what we need to do is get ourselves denounced on the floor of Congress again. <laughs> I, I think that might be coming. Who knows? Yeah, I think there's more of a causal relationship between that kind of thing. But Margaret's specific, I mean, it wasn't activism, it was it was work and it was activism, but right. it obviously it gets taken that way by a society, uh, an American society that isn't quite ready for it. And, you know, things start happening. So maybe we need to, to lean into that a bit more. And so <laughs> that's now my answer. Forget what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> Good. Know, let's make more trouble like that. that that's wonderful. And so... Uh, Tara, would, would you like to follow up on that? And <laughs> you want to be denounced I, in the Congress? Oh, I think I'm going to suggest you ask Sam next because I think it'll follow okay, up. Okay, Sam, why don't you? <laughs> Matt stole my answer. Yeah, no, it's perfect though because in the 1973 report, one of the things that they talked about was being not just discussing grievances, but being kind of a lightning rod for enhancing and kind of emphasizing to society those grievances, right? So to become a kind of hammer for women's grievances. And and in some sense, in a 1970 report in the AHA, there's a report called the Rose Report, and they describe themselves as aggressive activists. And so in some sense, I, I completely agree. There seems to be a point now where you can open it up again to kind of pushing forward with the things that to become a kind of loud voice for change in certain areas. So Tara. I think, I mean, I already mentioned this a little bit, but I think we really need to kind of collaborate with our colleagues of color and, you know, think about all these different intersectional categories together. It's, it's the issues that we see in this 1972 report and that we still see today that affect female scholars also affect, you know, queer trans scholars 
affect disabled scholars, scholars of color, and so on. And so I think we need to kind of work together and, and, and you know, that makes us all the more powerful and probably more likely to get denounced on the floor of the Senate. But, <laughs> but I, think, I think that that will benefit all of us if we can work that way. Great. And um, Margaret, if you have one thing you would like us to do more, what would that be? This is a STEM movement, and there's a lot of people who have some history of science background in it, and I don't think the society connects with them in any systematic way. But whoever is hiring these STEM personnel kinds of people, they think of history of science, I guess, as sort of a friendly ally. Mm-hmm. And I don't see us cooperating. But I know people who can't get jobs, who have PhDs in history of science, who don't get academic jobs, sometimes they get these other positions that are probably scientific personnel work, but they have some expertise that employers hire, and yet I don't know what happens to them next. Do they get promoted? Do they innovate in various ways? And maybe they'll find some future minority historians Mm -hmm. of science. Right. And also there's a certain amount of history of science on the radio. I think NOVA is one of the programs. Mm -hmm. They seem Mm -hmm. to have no connection to history of science society. We have to improve on that. So yeah, we do want to do a lot more. I don't know whether they should join yeah. join our group or um, uh-huh. form a subcategory of some kind. But right. whoever they are, I'm, yeah. I'm told that the ones who do Nova sometimes call up the MIT program and talk to people. But mm-hmm. I never see any mention or acknowledgement of HSS. And yet, it's, yeah. they seem to have been growing tremendously in the last ten or fifteen years. Right. Yeah, we certainly should do a lot more public outreach work, which is actually something I feel well, might, be a, might be a coalition of all these groups that are pushing science from a semi-humanistic point of view. Right, right. Excellent. Thank you so much. Like the, yep. Smithsonian Magazine is sort of part of that. There's a whole cluster. It isn't just ISIS and HSS. Okay. So, Tara, you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that Sam and I did a survey of the members of the Women Caucus, and there was a lot of interest among our members in sort of public writing, public history, and public scholarship. So, you know, I think there's a lot of potential there. And mm-hmm. as we think more broadly about our audiences, you know, that that uh, we should do more of that. Absolutely, yeah. And and Sam, I imagine you will agree with that. Yeah. So we held the Women's Caucus sponsored a round table at the last HSS about public responses to mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade and public outreach. And the one thing that came out of that was that more people just in HSS generally and not just women are interested in being trained in this type of public outreach and kind of understanding how to make those connections that some people, you know, when you call up the MIT department, you know, they say like, give me someone who does the history of physics, but there's also a way to do it where you introduce yourself around and and you do these things. And there are people from our field, like Rebecca Onion, who has have done really beautiful jobs and working their way into those careers. And so we're hoping to kind of capitalize that and help our members understand how to to do that work for themselves so that they can make an active difference and kind of the the things that matter to them. Right. That all sounds great. And so I I hope that maybe we can have some kind of a a workshop or even if it's online workshop about this this area of uh, work. So for each podcast episode, we have a quiz for the listeners. And so here's the quiz. One of our guests today actually served on the 1972-73 Committee on Women Historians of Science. 
So who is this person? Is it me? Yeah, it could be, yeah. So please email your answer to morgan at hsonline.org. Morgan is M-O-R-G-A-N, morgan at hsonline.org. So the first person who submits the correct answer will receive a special prize from HSS. We will announce the winner on the society's webpage and the social media. So in concluding this conversation, I'd like to ask you, our guests, to share one wish, only one wish, maybe in one sentence, for HSS in the advance of its 100th birthday. So birthday wish. Tara, you want to go first? Okay. I'll go ahead. I want us as a society to continue to think expansively about what the history of science is and whose stories we're telling. Great. And uh, Matt, you want to go the next? Sure. I want to just come briefly back to the fact that we're printing this draft report in the pages of ISIS, which was one of the original recommendations. It was meant to appear in ISIS. It never did. And we're not doing this out of any sense of restorative justice or just because it's an interesting primary source, but because Alex and I feel pretty strongly that it's important to remember that that progress comes at the cost of the comfort that that we have in the status quo, right? The changes that that Margaret and and Carolyn and the other members of this committee put down came at the cost of time and effort and resources and money and political capital and civility. And I just want us to remember that. So my wish is that we we bear the sacrifices in mind that people have made on our behalves already. Wonderful. And uh, Sam, those are two really good wishes. <laughs> I will say the same thing, and 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 just in general. To, to hope that the society continues to recognize the people that have left the field and the reasons why they do so, and to continue to invite people who are not in formal faculty positions to kind of engage with the field of history of science so that we can better understand not just our own work, but the work that we risk losing when we don't stand up for, for people in kind of mm-hmm. minoritized and, and, you know, tentative positions. We'll definitely do that and fulfill your wish. And Margaret, you have the last word. What's your wish? I think you should start a fund drive and raise money and have five or ten people called Centennial Scholars and give them a chance to stick with the field a while longer. Absolutely. And maybe people who, people who might take it in new and interesting areas. Great. Time is short, but, but I mean, funding helps. That's perfect wish. and. Yes, I'm so sorry. I've been working hard on that, but okay. So thank you so much, Margaret, and all of you. Thank you so much for this podcast. Thank you so much. And I'm truly grateful to everyone, and uh, particularly Babak and the consortium that have been uh, really provides all this technical support and so on and so forth. I'm truly grateful. And I hope you see you in Portland in November, all of you. <laughs>